as creative as the elf on the shelf that I've seen, okay? So I'm just saying, my mom was the original hipster, wasn't she? You know she was. She was always doing these things, and I don't want you to overthink the fact of looking for an elf and baby Jesus, okay? Just, it's fine. Let's just, don't worry about it. But I am somebody who loves Christmas. I love Advent. I kind of liked that our Christmas traditions mixed up because there was something new every year, something different that my family did, and it was so fun. I'm, I'm totally into it. I'm into the lights. I'm into the fanfare, the whole deal. You should have seen uh, a few days ago, my husband and I walked two blocks to a, a Christmas tree place where you could get your tree. We were so excited that we could just walk two blocks, didn't have to strap it to a car, and he's carrying it on his shoulder to our house, and I'm just beaming because I'm so excited because we're walking home with this Christmas tree. We're newlyweds. It's our first Christmas tree. And he failed to mention until this morning that he is 75% Grinch, he told me. And I think that's something that should come up in premarital counseling, but it did not. And I know some of you just, you got points for JD now, points for JD because you're like, yeah, I'm with JD, 75% Grinch. And don't, don't admit it to me right now. It's not going to go well for you. But what I'm saying is, is that we all have kind of a range, right? There's the people who are thrilled about Christmas. There's the people who are the Grinch, right? So everybody from the Grinch to the people who have the little, the little uh, chalkboard that says 365 days till Christmas, the day after Christmas. And we're all on a spectrum here, aren't we? Somewhere in here. Apparently, my husband's 75% Grinch, which puts him over here, and we're going to talk about that more later I just found out about this morning. Anyway, the point is, is that we have this spectrum, and we find ourselves on it, and honestly, it's okay, right? It's okay. Some of us get more excited about the Christmas season than others, and I will admit that I don't get as excited about the gifts and all of the, the things like that, but I do think that the extra thoughtfulness is really meaningful, and the lights and the music, and I love Christmas carols and all of those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, I think uh, we could do us well to remember the 80s adage, and some of you will remember this, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? See, you finished my sentence. My grandma had a button that she'd wear every year, and one year the button got to be about this big, and she would send us all buttons, and we were supposed to wear them. And to my knowledge, nobody who was doing like last-minute Christmas, you know, stocking stuff for shopping at Walmart or Target was converted through the Jesus is the reason for the season button, but you guys, you don't know. You never know. But in all honesty, I think it's a good thing for us to think about because we are all willing to admit, I think, in an honest moment, that the commercialism and all the hype and the fanfare can sometimes disconnect us from what I think is a pretty gritty reality of the actual Christmas story. I think sometimes it can cause us to sanitize it, maybe a little bit. Sanitize the realities of what actually happened in this Christmas story. The reality that some very poor, very oppressed, discouraged people welcomed the savior of the world into our world in one of the most messy ways that could possibly happen. Some of you know I'm talking about childbirth, and you know. It's messy. We don't have to get into the details, but it's, it's awesome, amazing, messy. And this is how God decided to enter into the world. The God of the universe didn't have to become a human. The God of the universe didn't have to condescend to become one of us. And he certainly needed, didn't need to do it in that way. He didn't have to enter into our mess like that, but he did. And I think that in an honest moment, you and I both know that we are a hot mess half the time, maybe more than half the time, all right? And some of you don't want to nod and agree with me, but I'm serious. I really think that we are messy. And, and, and when you look back over this year, I don't know what it is for you and how that kind of messiness of your life manifests itself. Some of you just straight up act out. Others of you withdraw from other people. Others of you are people who just 
uh, have these little mini breakdowns and then pick yourself up by your bootstraps and then have a mini breakdown, pick yourself up, you know what I'm talking about. And then there's other people who are just hitting the highs really high and the lows really low. And I want to say to you, that mess is real and it is pervasive and we all have it. And Jesus decided to come into the mess. Jesus decided to enter into this reality. We can look back over our year and we can say, there were some times when I had it all put together. And then here's the times when I was a little bit of a mess or a lot of bit of a mess and somewhere in between. And this is the life, the world that Jesus comes into. Jesus came into our life anyway. And that, I think, at the core of it is what Christmas is about, right? Jesus came into this world in spite of us. In fact, for us, right? Jesus came into our lives in spite of us and our mess. And I think one of the things I love about the non-sanitized, gritty Christmas story version, the gritty one that's just being really raw and honest, is that as you look through these pages and you look through these, these characters that are the, you know, the, the people who support the main character, who obviously is baby Jesus, and as you look at these different characters, you see them respond on a spectrum, right? Similar to what I just said, the spectrum of, of response to the fact that the savior of the world is going to come as a little baby king, right? You've got the people who are thrilled and they praise God right away. And then you've got the people who are so threatened, these political leaders who are so threatened by him and, and this little baby that they uh, act out in these different ways, right? And they're not wrong that he's a threat. And then you have a bunch of people all in the middle, right, responding to this reality in different ways. And I think that these folks who we're going to look at today are people who uh, are kind of in that messy middle of how they responded to this new thing that God was doing. These people in the story are these unsuspecting humans, and they are caught off guard by the fact that God's going to do something new. And I think the fact that they're caught off guard makes a lot of sense, because at this time, when we begin here in the beginning of Luke, there's been 400 years of silence. 400 years since Malachi had, had prophesied and announced that the Messiah was going to come. So you can imagine that people aren't sitting around with, you know, Pinterest chalkboards counting the days at this point. We're talking 400 years of people waiting. And so we see these people in this story. We have this, this, these couple of characters that I want to talk about today, and it's uh, Elizabeth and Zachariah. Okay, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and you see them right here in the beginning of this story. And uh, as they're described, there's three descriptions give to Elizabeth and Zechariah. The first is that they had been people who had really tried to be faithful to God. Cool. The second is that they are childless because Elizabeth is not able to conceive. And then the third is that they're very old. So you can put those things together and you can see the tension in their lives. They are faithful people that tried to follow God yet they are childless, and they are now very old. And I would suggest that any couple who's trying to conceive and can't, that is a painful thing, and there's so many societal pressures that come with that. However, I think the first century Jewish uh, culture would have this amount of shame on a couple like that that would be very difficult for us to imagine in the cultures that most of us are a part of today. Then there's one more really important descriptor given to Zechariah, and that is that Zechariah is a priest. Okay, that's his vocation. He's a priest. He's come from the priestly division of the people of Israel. And there's a lot of duties that are assigned to a priest. Uh, most of the duties that are assigned to a priest revolve around a specific building, and that is the temple. And the temple is seen as this place where God's people perceived that God was most present. All right, so this building, it was almost like a house for God. They built this, this building as a house for God. And so their, their conception of God is that God is most present in this temple. And as a priest, uh, 
Zechariah would have gone in maybe a couple times a year to the inner courts, and he would have had specific responsibilities as a priest to do specific kind of religious duties and things that were all about the people of God at that time making uh, forgiveness for their sins and praying and crying out to God, okay? So as we start this story, this is no ordinary day for Zechariah. This is a special day. This might be the most special day in all of his life as a priest because the, this is the day that he's going to go into what's called the Holy of Holies, okay? So in this temple, there's outer courts and inner courts, and in the very center, there is the Holy of Holies. And every priest was, was chosen once in their lifetime, if they're lucky, to go into the Holy of Holies and to bring in incense and to light the incense, and the incense represents the prayers of the people going up to God. And today is the day that Zechariah is chosen to do this. Huge deal. Huge deal for him in his life. He is uh, coming into this place. There's 18,000 priests at this time that Zechariah lived. And so here he is. He's got his chance. Today's his day. And he goes in, and there's some other priests in the inner court, and then there's some other religious leaders in the outer court, and the people are there. This is a highly pious, highly holy religious ceremony. Very, very center to what he does. And then I want to read what happens in Luke, uh, the first chapter of Luke, starting in verse 10. If you have a Bible, otherwise we'll have it up on the screen. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure? Of this. I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why had he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. This is a majorly awkward moment for Zechariah, all right? And I am feeling some empathy for him as a pastor, because he's supposed to come out here on this special day, and guess what he's supposed to do? He's supposed to give the benediction. And he comes out, and he's all sign language and, and miming and trying to communicate, and he can't speak. And many scholars believe that he couldn't hear either, that there's some ways that this is written in the Greek that would suggest that he could not hear, he could not speak, and he had to come out in this moment with all eyes on him, and he couldn't say anything. This is the worst. This is like the worst thing I could imagine. I have this reoccurring stress dream. Anybody have reoccurring stress dreams? All right, let me tell you about mine, then maybe you'll know. So I have this dream that I am supposed to speak at something because that's what I do in my job, right? So it's a job stress dream. 
And, uh, and I get there, and someone's like, we're so glad that you're going to speak. And I have no idea that I'm supposed to do that. And I have no ideas, nothing to say. I realize that's hard to believe, but it's a dream. So I have nothing to say. It's like I have no voice. I have nothing to say. And this is this reoccurring stress dream for me. And one time I had the dream, and I was wearing sweatpants, and I was supposed to officiate a funeral. Do other people have vocation stress dreams? Please tell me I'm not the only one. People about their job. Okay, Sunday night before Monday, right? For me, Saturday night. All right. This reality, this is his reality. So I'm reading this story, and I'm just, like, getting hooked because this is his reality. He comes out. He's supposed to say something, and nothing. He can't. Zachariah's whole life, you guys, he probably dreamed about this moment. He dreamed about this moment where he was going to have his turn to come out of the temple on that day and to give the priestly benediction, the one found in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Can you imagine him just dreaming about this day? May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He can't say anything. Can you imagine that in that moment instead, the Lord's countenance is not upon everybody else. Instead, on his face is just shame. And, and, and fear and all the things that he felt as he was just in that room. After they return home, sure enough, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And she declares right away, this, the Lord has done this for me. I have to have sympathy for Zachariah. I hope that you can have some sympathy for Zachariah. Because I know if I'm honest, I am right there with that guy wanting to know things for sure. I like to teeter on that line between critical thinking and cynical judgment. You know what that line is, a lot of you know. I think Zachariah would have fit in around here a little bit. I don't see myself as a pessimist. However, my husband seems to think that sometimes I'm a pessimist. You're the one that's 75% Grinch, just saying. I like to think of myself as a realist, right? I don't see the glass half empty or half full. It has 6.25 ounces of water in it. Okay, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, okay, at times. At times, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, and I understand. So I sympathize with Zach here. I sympathize the fact that he had been waiting for generations. People had been waiting for generations, hundreds of years, waiting, watching, and nothing. And I get that. Have you ever waited for something that you thought would never come? Have you ever waited for something that did not come? Man, that stuff is hard. I know I have. This is why I don't think it's a good idea to sanitize Advent, because the whole thing is about waiting. And last time I checked, that stuff was painful and hard. And here's these people waiting for so long. Uh, one of the, a pastor who's a friend of mine uh, named Dan White Jr., he said this recently. He said, don't sanitize Advent. There were 400 years of silence from when Malachi prophesied about the forthcoming justice and the arrival of the Messiah. There are no easy answers to why God makes us wait. And I won't give you any easy answers to that today. I mean, these people were waiting around, and they weren't doing that in a nice, secure lifestyle. We're not talking like the, the Jewish middle class. I don't think that existed, you guys. We're talking about people who were living in a town and, a, and cities where they had been invaded by people who were more powerful than them. They were under the control of Rome, under control of these leaders who could, could and did take anything they wanted from you. They want your property, they want your money, they want your firstborn, they got it. They got to say what they wanted to say, and there was nothing that they could do about it. 
They had no voice. They had no authority. They had no ability to control the outcome of their circumstances. And they waited. So Zechariah is going into the Holy of Holies, the place where everyone thinks God is most present, right? But perhaps waiting for God to do something and not hearing anything for so long meant that he went into that space just assuming God's not doing anything. Can you blame him for that? Even though he's in that important day and that important place, the guy is shocked that God's actually moving. How often do we get to places and spaces where we feel like God should be, only to come up empty? How often do we resonate with that reality? We're so desperate to experience God and to see God move, and we go to worship services, and we read the Bible, and we try to engage in practices, and we're listening to sermons and all of this stuff, but we feel distant, don't we? I know that's not everybody's story, but I know that it's some of your story right now. I know some of you are really confused. Why? Why do you feel so distant from God? And others of you, you know. You know the circumstances that you're going through in your life are keeping you in darkness. But God hasn't forgotten you. God sees you in that place. God knows you. Yes, the, the waiting part, that is a part of the gritty, non-sanitized version of this story, and it's a part of the gritty, non-sanitized version of yours. But the reality that we see here is that God sees you, and he saw Zechariah, and he saw the people who had been waiting for him to move. I mean, God sends Gabriel, okay? We're not talking like the B-team junior varsity angels. We're talking like the big guy. He's like, listen, why are you questioning me? I'm Gabriel. Why would you think that I don't know? And Gabriel actually gives Zach a lot of information. He's telling him what's going to happen and all this stuff. And he could have just been like, dude, you're having a kid. And I think that would have been a big enough announcement. But he's going through and telling him everything. He's going to have this miracle baby that shouldn't happen. And then it's not just that this baby is going to be a miracle because they're not supposed to be able to conceive, but this baby boy is going to be important. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. This is literally what everyone was waiting to hear. I mean, exactly what everyone was waiting to hear. But Zachariah's response is, how can I be sure? Instead of jumping for joy that God's going to change everything and God's going to use his family, instead, all he can focus in is how old he is. This deficit mentality that some of us know all too well. He's probably thinking science says this is impossible. And maybe he wasn't exactly thinking science at that time. But he's thinking like, things make this not possible for me. And he says, how can I be sure? And I resonate with that. How many times have I asked God that question? How can I be sure? You better believe that I've said that to God many times. If I had to put all my idols out here, you know, all the things that I tend to worship more than God at times in my life, if I had to put all my little idols out here for you on display, right in the center would be the idol of certainty. That's one of my favorite ones. Man, if you could just lift that one up, because I know in my heart that this isn't real, but if I could just know for sure, that would make all the difference. Because you know what? It's hard to believe in God, but certainty, now that's something you can believe in. That would be good. But I know deep in myself that certainty is a myth, that it's not attainable, that it's not real. And even if it was, you can't believe in something that you know for sure. That's not how faith works. God invites us to trust, but it is so hard. And on this day, it was too hard for Zechariah. 
and the words came out, how can I be sure? I think meditating on this story this week has kind of hit me in a different way, uh, thinking about my vocation as a pastor, and here's uh, Zachariah trying to figure out how to be a priest on the day when everyone's looking at him. Man, if I'm honest with you, there's insecurities that come up with me in my life when I read a story like this and see this guy caught without being able to give the benediction. I remember when we started Mill City. I remember when uh, 30, 40 of us started to gather in homes around here. Some of us moved here. I remember how excited we were because we felt like God was really calling us to this city, that God was calling us to love our community in the name of Jesus, to be people that were sent people out into this broken world that God loves, to be people who declared Jesus' name and raised his name up. I remember when we first officially named Mill City uh, the name Mill City, and we were so excited because we thought this nickname for Minneapolis is perfect. We hope that it would express to this community that we love this neighborhood and we want, are for you, not against you. That this, this nickname for Minneapolis that represents the earliest vocations of the city, the flour mills and the sawmills, these people and these blue-collar jobs that worked super hard, and we thought about what it looked like to say, we're here for you, and we love you no matter what, and we love the city despite its faults and all its isms and all the things that are so broken that God needs to redeem, and we were so excited. Man, people had actual visions and dreams, things that made us so sure that this is what God was calling us to do. And most of the time, I felt really sure. But I also remember one other day. It was about a year after the church started, and I was going into a meeting with my boss at the time, and I was going to quit my job and go to, to be a pastor full-time. And I remember being a little bit nervous about that meeting, and I went in there, and I told him about it, and he was actually really excited for me. He said, oh, Steph, I'm so excited for you. And then I heard this come out of my mouth. I heard me say, I heard this come out of my mouth. Do you ever have that happen where you're like, I didn't plan on saying this? Okay, that happens to me a lot. Not surprised. Comes out of my mouth, and I said, well, I'm excited too, but statistically, only about 20% of church plants make it past five years. So... We'll see what happens. This is my way of saying, let's not get too excited because we can't be absolutely sure. Here we are, nine years later. Some of you maybe don't realize this fall we'll celebrate 10 years of Mill City Church. And as we look to that, I'm excited. We're going to have a party. It's going to be really fun. But as I look towards that, it feels surreal. Why does it feel surreal? Because I know that I doubted it because I know that there was something that held me back from giving my full trust to something that I knew God was inviting us into. I mean, the angel Gabriel didn't show up, no, but we were more sure. I, I think in, in my life, I have been more sure about the fact that God was calling this church to Northeast Minneapolis to be nothing and become something. I was more sure of that than anything in my life, and I still am, yet there's still that part of me that needed so desperately to feel sure. I clung to that. And I think we can see in this story that there's consequences to Zachariah's doubt, isn't there? There's consequences. I mean, he asked to be sure. He wanted a sign. Well, he got one. Wasn't how he was hoping, maybe. I don't know. The glowing human wasn't enough of a sign. So he got one. He couldn't speak. He couldn't hear. God fulfills God's promises the way God wants to, not the way that we often want God to. You better believe that he was more sure than ever as he walked out of that temple, but there was no way he could express it to the people who were there. But I need you to notice something in this story. Do you notice that God 
didn't hesitate in using him? That God could have said through Gabriel, well, okay, if you're going to be a doubter guy, then forget it. Bring in the next priest. But he didn't do that, did he? God didn't hesitate in continuing to use Zechariah even though he doubted. I mean, the guy balked at the most powerful angel ever right to his glowing face. But it didn't disqualify him. It didn't disqualify him. Some of us may always lean towards critical thinking, all right? I know that we will. But God will still use us. We can't pretend that there's not going to be consequences to the reality when that critical thinking, that positive critical thinking turns into cynicism. There's going to be consequences, aren't there? You know what they are. It not just affects you. It affects your family. It affects your, your, your kids. It affects your friends, your housemates. When you're in that place and you're stuck in that spot, there are consequences to that. This is why I am saying all the time, it is crucial for us to press into our questions and press into our doubts and not run from them. Because even though that's hard and you're in this dark place and you're feeling that cynicism almost feel like it controls you, there's freedom from that. But we have to be willing to have courage and step into that work. But more than anything, what I want you to notice is that even in our most cynical moments, that doesn't disqualify us from being used by God. We can get into that mindset pretty easily, can't we? Like we can't join God's work in the world unless we are positive about what God is doing. That we are only, if we feel close to God, then we can actually be a part of what God's doing. Apparently, according to the stories in this book, that is not true. At times, we feel like Zechariah. We feel like our voice is taken from us. We don't know how to talk to God or about God. We don't know what God's doing around us. I think that this story and the other stories of the Bible show us that God often uses the least likely, and that includes us. So let's work through our stuff. But if we don't invite God into that, it's going to go nowhere fast. So let's talk about the end of the story. Nine months later, this little baby is born. And uh, the day comes for the baby to be circumcised. And at this time, that would be kind of like gathering for the baby's dedication or christening in some current traditions. And everybody in the family that means something to this family is there. And at this time, the family chooses the name for the little baby. And usually the father is the one who says it, but guess what? Zachariah still can't say anything. And so in this moment, the rest of the family decides on behalf of Zachariah, well, we're going to call him Zachariah after his dad. And then Elizabeth declares, no, his name will be John. And just like your passive-aggressive extended family members, everyone starts sharing their opinions about that name. No, 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 Elizabeth, don't you realize nobody in our family has that name? I don't think you realize that uh, it would be very important if you named him after his father. We can call him Little Zach. We can get him a little scroll of his own, Little Priest Junior that says Junior on it. No? There's so much culturally that's going on here. Last week, Joe talked about how naming a child is a huge deal. It's not just how they're going to refer to him. This is naming his destiny. And in this reality, people would always name their firstborn son after their father. If anybody was named anything different, I mean, if this guy is not named Zach Jr., it's declaring that he is not going to follow in his father's footsteps. And that is super offensive at this time to any dad. Whole heaps of extra offensive when your dad's a priest. Thousands of years of priests in this family. And Zach steps into the fray. And he asks for a tablet, and he writes, his name will be John. And everyone's just like, 
wide-eyed. I'm sure their jaws dropped because this is crazy. And in that moment, Zechariah could speak, and out of his mouth came all these praises to God. Can you imagine the thing he had hoped for in his whole life? His, his wife had conceived, and he couldn't say anything. He couldn't thank God or praise God. And so out of him comes these praises, and, and this song is written down. I just want to read the very end of this song that comes out of Zechariah because it says, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began to prophesy. And he said in verse uh, 76, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, which by the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet unto the path of peace. And then it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Because of God's tender mercy, he will guide us to peace. Through this man, John in Hebrew means Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. John was going to declare the coming of Jesus, the most direct action of grace that would ever declare who God is to this dark and broken world. John wasn't going to be a priest like his dad. He wasn't going to go through those priestly motions and learn all the laws and all of the things. He wasn't going to perfectly light the incense in this time. He was going to be separated from his family. He was going to grow up living in, in a wilderness of sorts. He wasn't going to be a priest. He was going to be a prophet. And the most significant prophet, some might say, foretelling the most significant story. That grace has come to this earth in the form of a human and moved into the neighborhood. John is not the only one who followed God right out of the family business. We know that's all over this story. I know that's all over some of your stories as well. No doubt some of us have felt that feeling of estrangement from our family or some community because of what it means to us to be a deeply devoted follower of Jesus no matter what the cost. People in your life have criticized you. Maybe you felt estranged or distanced from them. God sees you, God wants to use you in that space. I hope that this Advent, as we're talking about these unlikely characters, we can see ourselves in the story. Not that you have to resonate exactly with Elizabeth or, or John the Baptist or Zachariah, but that we can see that these are imperfect people who will never have it all together. And we are imperfect people who never will never have it all together getting the opportunity to serve a God that didn't need to use us, but a God that chooses to use us. The story of God proves throughout all of these pages that God will use the cynics, God will use the saints and the sinners, God will use the people who are lonely, the people who are likable, and God will use the least likely. God will use the powerful, but he'll also use the marginalized. God will use the people who have means, and God will use people who are very poor, God will use those who have been healed and God who will use those who are waiting. God will use those who are married, who are single, who are divorced, who've been deserted, who are discouraged, who are doubting. God will use you when you're happy, when you're hopeless, and everything in between. And that's what it means for God to be gracious. Thank God for that grace. And we get to go, just like John, to other people and say, God is gracious. He's been gracious to me. Because he uses me. I'm going to invite the band to come up. God's grace was born into this messy world. In one of the most messy ways into our messy lives, 
to a couple of no doubt hot mess teenagers who were super scared. God's grace came into that space and we know that he didn't stay a little baby, right? He grew up and he had this powerful ministry leading and teaching and healing and loving the most unlovable people, just like us. Jesus stepped into this reality where he took on himself on the cross all the brokenness of our lives, of this world, upon himself on that cross. And the moment that he died, you know what happened? The holy of holies shook. And the curtain that separated all the normal people from God's presence was torn because God had left the building. That's the story. And he didn't stay dead. He came back to life to conquer all those things that separate us from God today to promise to us that right now we can be close to God in a new way, but someday there'll be nothing that separates us. There'll be no more crying and pain and shame and waiting because God will be with us and have made all things new. And so we're going to celebrate communion like we do each week. And what I think is so powerful about this today is that this is a way that we come and we tangibly receive God's grace. We receive this reality that Jesus conquered death through his body that was broken for your brokenness and for mine. Through his blood that was shed to declare God's grace in a new way for anyone who wants it. So you're going to be invited in just a minute to come down this aisle or this aisle. There'll be people here to serve communion to you. You can just take the bread, dip it into the cup. It's gluten-free so everybody can participate. And then uh, whenever you're ready, you can partake in it. And then we'll have people here on this wall and this wall who would love to pray for you as we continue to step into this season of waiting, Advent, the arrival of this little baby who changed everything. I just want to encourage anyone who's here today who's been holding back a part of your heart from this God who loves you. Listen, you can't be totally sure. There's no such thing as certainty. But so many of us in this room would say the most important decision we ever made was to give our whole selves to Jesus. So if that's where you're at, there are so many people who would love to pray with you and talk with you about that today. Just let one of us know. Let me send you out with this benediction from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.